Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So, welcome to the October Simulcast Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon to talk all things healthcare simulation. How are you, Ben? I'm really good. Yeah, looking forward to it. Feels like it's been a little while, and we've had lots of adventures in the last month or two. So, looking forward we to have. some more lots for the of, end of the uh, year. Correct. Yes, there's been speaking at conferences at Coda Change. Don't forget the bubbles, other triumphs. Uh, and speaking of conferences, I do want to give a little shout out for our Simulation Reconnect event at Bond University, Wednesday, November the 16th. If you go to the Simulcast website, there's a link there where you can find the program and register. But we're very keen to see anyone in the simulation community who wants to just catch up with old friends and uh, listen to a few interesting talks. The other thing I want to mention, Ben, is that uh, this is completely self-serving, complete conflict of interest, but uh, Bond University is going to be running a translational simulation subject next year. Oh, fantastic. For people who are interested. I know I can look for the shock on your face. Well, it's excitement, I think, no yeah. Yes, I know. So if people are interested in that, I'm happy to talk to them about that. But uh, if you go to the Bond University website, bond.edu.au, and put in translational simulation, that subject should come up if people are interested. And my contact details are there. But let's talk simulation literature, Ben. It's a episode of Friends today. People we know and like are the authors of the papers. So I feel like this adds extra pressure because we have to give feedback in that really caring, concerning way, but they want us to have high integrity and tell us what they we really think. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, no personal biases from us at all, of course. So. No. Well, given that you're the author of one of them, <laughs> I, I feel like this is a particular pressure That's on right, you. yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to kick off with the first paper, which is about leadership in maternity teams. And the first author on this is Sarah Jansen. So I'm just going to start with a big congratulations because uh, this paper is one of a number and she has just been awarded her PhD. So well done, Sarah. And she's also been a big fan of Simulcast, so it's only appropriate she headline this episode. And the paper we're looking at is called Co-Leadership in Maternity Teams, a Randomized Counterbalance Crossover Trial in Simulation. And that's just published in Simulation in Healthcare. And to put a little headline over this. This paper is about using simulation as a test bed for researching performance. And in this case, testing whether a co-leadership model for a team is better, different, worse than a singular leadership model. And the background to this, as they describe, is that having a singular leader tends to be the dominant paradigm within maternity and lots of other teams. Uh, and a lot of healthcare teamwork assessment tools often assess the behaviours of the leader. And they then go on to talk about shared leadership. And I love this quote from the paper. Shared leadership shifts the focus from who is leading to what leadership functions are being performed, which I think is a nice distinction. And so they talk about the fact that in the literature there are some new models um, which potentially distribute the workload between more than one person, uh, empowers other team members, but does risk duplication, conflict, and goal confusion. And Ben, I guess for me, a little pause point here, for me, this is easy to understand, say, in our 
uh, ACLS resuscitation scenarios where maybe there is a nurse who's so-called running the algorithm while there might be a doctor who's thinking about what are the causes of this and setting a bit of strategic direction. Um, do you kind of think about this shared leadership concept a bit in those sorts of ideas? I do, and I think I find it a little bit like it's very interesting. I think different subspecialties approach it in different ways. And so certainly in a lot of pediatric emergency teams, there would be an established sort of considered co-leadership model, but there is a medical and a nursing team leader. And I think traditionally that would be that medical is considering more of the diagnostic and therapeutic interventions. And the nursing leader is uh, a bit like Hicks and Petro would sometimes talk about like the event coordinator or facilitator, making sure that things are done and enacted and maintaining an awareness of the whole. Uh, so it's an interesting kind of dynamic in that I think what we see leadership as in different specialties is very different. And I think obstetrics is a little bit of a really interesting case because there is that intersectionality between two teams that uh, often work in overlapping but somewhat different places and spaces within a shared set of patients. So it's interesting to see how this mm. comes out. Mm, yes. And that's a nice segue to think about what they define and what we think about as co-leadership versus a single leader. Uh, and so in this study, as I said, RCT, looking at co-leadership where they had someone designated to be a clinical leader, i.e. assessment, diagnosis, management, and someone to be what they called logistics leader, team coordination, resource management, communication. And I think this idea, whereas in the single intervention, they, they expected one person to do all those leadership functions. And I've seen a couple of these dichotomies dissected out by different people. Uh, Eduardo Salas talks about tasks versus teams, and you can see that latter logistics person is looking after a lot of the teamwork, whereas the other person is looking after some of the task work. The other dichotomy I like to use is strategy versus execution. You know, clearly these labels are all um, just whatever you choose, but I can see that there are some thoughts about how to divide that leadership, which we'll come back to at the end. So the way that they did this was within, um, actually at my own institution and at the uh, Mater Hospital, they situated this study within their maternity emergency courses. And for all the people participating, they gave them some training in each leadership model on the course day, and then they put them through scenarios. And uh, each team was between five to eight members. And then the teams did two scenarios that were selected from four, some a couple of different postpartum hemorrhage scenarios, a shoulder dystocia, a fetal bradycardia, which if you're in that maternity world, you know these are pretty – they're the ones people worry about. And the term counterbalanced means that they thought carefully about which ones they did first and second so that not everyone was doing the single leadership model first and then their shared leadership. They kind of carefully thought about the sequencing of that as well as the sequencing of the actual scenarios. Um, but then, so, they, so they're the two streams, as it were, the teams working with the single leader versus the co-leadership model. And the interesting bit here was what they decided to use as their outcome measures. They used a thing called the teamwork score, which is Jenny Weller's seven-point uh, team behavior tool, which you can easily look up online, but it asks things like, are the roles allocated? Is there a clear leadership? Um, is there good communication? Do people speak up? Uh, they also looked at how successful at completing a checklist specific to the actual actions within the scenarios were the teams. 
Uh, and they also ask participants to rate their own task and mental workload, to fill out a team tool, yet another tool that measures teamwork, but this is by participants' um, perceptions, but also some qualitative perceptions on a sort of like it item questionnaire. So pretty multifaceted uh, outcome measures. So they ended up with 32 teams, 64 scenarios, um, and with respect to their primary outcome, which was this Auckland team behaviour tool, no difference in the scores between the co-leadership and the singular leader. In their secondary outcomes, also no difference. So from their quantitative measures, they didn't find any difference in uh, outcomes between co-leadership models versus singular. But people really liked it, Ben. They thought it was great and it was a fascinating contradiction to the quantitative measures and most people said, yes, we should embed this and implement it. It might be a bit hard at first, but we should do it because I feel like it, you know, all the things that were positively mentioned there, it distributes the workload, it empowers other team members. So what do you think? I think this is really interesting and I think this theme of uh, quantitative uh, feedback showing not much of a difference and qualitative positivity is a theme we're going to go come back to in, in one of the other papers as well. Um, I had a few thoughts. I can imagine, and I'm completely speculating, you may or know, but I can imagine Sarah was a bit disappointed with these findings or surprised. Uh, <laughs> oh, she's a researcher. Of then. course. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I did wonder... Because I guess uh, my first take home was, well, this could be considered depressing in some ways that when we take a step back and look objectively, actually uh, co-leadership, which seems more sort of egalitarian and holistic, actually didn't make a difference in terms of the care that was measurable. Uh, but I guess the counterpoint to that is that's also freeing in some ways in that if either option is equally as good with the right team, then we can essentially assign our, uh, uh, design our team structures around the things that are aligned with our values of that particular organization. So I think in some ways that's kind of freeing uh, rather than disappointing. Yeah, I know. And, and maybe this should have been for the quantitative people out there, a non-inferiority yeah. uh, study yeah. in, when it came to the quantitative measures, in which case you would go, yeah. yes, success. Yeah, absolutely. And I think secondly, uh, and again, I'm just sort of heaping praise on people, but I do wonder whether, uh, much like some of the other obstetric interventions we've seen, that the quality of care uh, in these hospitals is actually pretty good. And then we're doing mm. scenarios based around uh, high intensity, but also often well-rehearsed and discreet and well-described scenarios. And so I just wonder whether it's harder to show a, you know, a measurable difference in that type of setting and that potentially either you need a less experienced teams or to give the teams an unexpected twist or challenge that would then go, sure, when we're on rails and doing the predictable thing, this goes smoothly. But how does a change in collaborative or shared leadership impact when the unexpected occurs? Um, was mm. just sort of the thoughts that went through my head. Yes, if on that uh, Auckland team behaviour tool uh, we've got a skew up towards a positive outcome, then that may be harder to show a difference. I, I agree. And they do make a mention of that in their limitations. Is it, it is a narrow context that they're measuring, less than 10-minute scenarios, quite hyper-acute. And as you say, ones that 
fortunately have got a pretty well rehearsed uh, response. So that may be part of it. Uh, I mean, I think it really calls into question when you get a result like this, does it mean the measures are bad or does it mean that people have no insight into their performance? I mean, that, that would be polarising the two potential explanations for this, isn't it, is that either these way we're measuring things isn't right or people have no idea how effective their teams are. I would like to think it's somewhere in between. Uh, I do think those teamwork measures we have are useful at helping to know what a good team looks like, but they actually are pretty limited in that they're so process orientated. And I would say that many truly elite teams often wouldn't score very well on these because they do all kinds of shortcuts and assumptions and implicit coordination that wouldn't score well. So that's one of my hesitations with thinking about the quantitative measures. Um, and the other thing I think is it was a shame they didn't do this as a truly mixed method study, i.e. they would have done their quantitative measures and then taken that back to those participants and said, hey, this is what we've got. What do you think? How, how can you explain this lack of uh, change, whereas other people seem to think that it, it felt better? And that, I think, would have added so much to the qualitative data. I'm sure I know why they didn't, because it would have been so hard to get people back after the course. Um, so feasibility, I'm sure, was big. But it would have been really interesting if there'd been a sort of sequence of, of data collection. So great stuff. But uh, I suppose, yeah, what do we do with it, Ben? Yeah, uh, I was sitting with that. And I, I do think we have to continue to both, oh, what's the right word? I think we do have to look at that conflict and that um, asynchrony between those two findings and continue to challenge ourselves to think that just because something feels good, uh, can we actually measure and prove that it is making a positive impact? Because I'd have to say I, I am trending in my old age to get more, <laughs> more of a cynic when it comes to our ability to, to measure our performance. Um, but I agree, like getting that qualitative extra data may reveal some of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it prompts a conversation uh, and gives some words to conversations in debriefings about leadership and the way the leadership is exercised and who's doing it. One of the other comments that they make in here is about, did they make the right split? Should it be between, say, clinical and logistics or should it be that we have sub-teams that are a bit more autonomous and, in fact, the leadership is shared between functions as opposed to other things? It reminded me of, I think it was Ralph McKinnon's study that, where they started out, they were going to do a study of in situ simulation for trauma care in PEDS. And then they started looking at what they were going to use for their outcome measures and decided that there weren't enough good ones. And so they totally changed the focus of their research into what are good outcome measures for pediatric trauma. And uh, that was quite interesting. So I ended up looking back at that paper, which was Advances in Simulation in 2019, where they sort of said that the novel framework they came up with was talking about the system team, process, individual data and culture as things that were all relevant when you started to think about uh, quality of trauma care. And I think any time that research prompts us to think about how do we measure our outcomes, that's that's a good step too. And I think Sarah's contributed to that. 100%. Congratulations, Sarah. Mm. Yeah. All right. And well done on Mm. the PhD. 
All right, I think I'm going to do the next one as well. Is if that that's right? All right. Speaking of friend, yeah, speaking of friends of Simulcast, Cara Allen, first author on this one from uh, the Gandalf Simulation Service. This is an article in Anesthesia and Intensive Care called Eight Years of Crash, a bi-national initiative helping critical care doctors return to work. Now, CRASH, in case you're wondering, that is an acronym that stands for Critical Care Resuscitation Airway Skills colon, helping you return to work. And so this is a course that's run across Australia and New Zealand for people who've spent more than three months off work from anesthesia, ED and ICU. And this article talks about the development and evolution of the course. And they give some interesting sort of stats, Ben. I don't know if you were surprised by some of these things, but um, some things are not surprising. Returning to work is hard, uh, but interestingly worth it because if we don't make the most of that workforce who takes some time off, we're, we're struggling and obviously it's worth it for the people who are doing it as well. Uh, there are apparently quite a few courses around the world. Initially, this course was just anesthesia, um, now quite expanded to include ICU and ED. Initially, they just ran it twice a year, now several times a year, and thanks to the pandemic, some virtual formats as well. Uh, skills, clinical decision-making, they use simulations, case discussions, and I think, interestingly, some really important things about uh, peer support, building confidence, having a kind of community of practice as much as it is about the uh, actual practical skills and decision-making, which, again, is not surprising. Now, just while we're talking interesting stats, Ben, 45% of anesthesia trainees are female, but 96% of those who take parental leave are women. How about that? Yeah, I was thinking a, a, a lot about that uh, while I was reading the article. There were some statistics there that show that, well, A, there's still quite a gender skewed mm. both in the people who take their course and who are taking time off um, during training. Uh, the couple of little things about the course that I thought were interesting. So first they did their faculty recruitment first, which I thought was just inspired because they got the people who were interested in putting this together before they started saying this is what's going to be in it. And I think that's probably pretty important if you want to own it and really feel like what's important. So they're very careful with that. Um, ostensibly, the course has got four modules, airway, obstetrics and pediatrics, life support and simulation. There's some pre-reading, uh, pretty flexible delivery based on the characteristics of the attendees. So they do see that six weeks beforehand and sort of make certain emphasis. And then uh, they do some faculty and participant evaluation. Uh Importantly, they don't do any assessment, which I think is wise because, as we know, that sort of skews people's participation if they feel like they're being assessed. And I imagine it's a complete minefield if, as a course, they decided to certify people as fit to work again and then there were issues that would be, I imagine, fairly problematic. Uh, but I thought um, nice to write that up. They've had 197 participants since 2014, so that's a fairly um, great impact on the workforce. There's still a predominance of anaesthetic uh, folks who do this, but um, nice to see that the others are there, although maybe ICU and ED might be thinking about doing something specific to them as well. Absolutely. I think uh, the things that I really enjoyed <coughs> were uh, the visual representation of their curricular goals. And I loved how deeply embedded both the knowledge and task stuff was with the sort of equal emphasis on development of community and um, sort of psychological reassurance and planning and tips for returning back to work. I thought that was really nicely displayed as a clear value. Mm. I would have loved to hear yeah. a little bit more about the lessons they'd learned from developing mm. the course and anything that they would 
change because I felt like it was more of a this is how it has evolved type paper. But I did, again, find it really fascinating to look at some of that demographic data and also some of the cultural contrasts between the ways returning to work is approached in different countries. Yeah, yeah. Some of that aligned pretty well with some of our stereotypes. Yeah. Um, but some of it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I agree that little figure three, if people would like to look it up, um, which showed how the modules were really interwoven amongst those things, as you said, about peer supports and refreshing knowledge and building confidence. Yeah, and it sounded like a lovely sort of uh, very learner-centered course that's you know, titrated and adapted to the learner group that comes and it sounded delightful. So thanks for creating it. Yeah, and I think that's yeah, and I think that's a really good example of pulling sim into the bits that where it's yeah. helpful. Um but then obviously using other modalities for other um curricular goals. 100%. Yeah. All right, Ben, you better do some work. I now. know I've worked to the bone Vic. Sorry about that. Uh, all right. Well, I am really excited about the papers you've chosen. So, uh, the first one is entitled Debriefing Interaction Patterns and Learning Outcomes in Simulation and Observational Mixed Methods Network Study. And it's by Sandra Aberglen et al. Uh, and published in Advances in Simulation. And I just thought this was a great pick from you, Vic, in that it really follows on nicely from the episode you did with Andrew Coggins about using visual conversation maps to provide quantitative feedback for debriefers. And that, that certainly for my sim team has been a really profoundly useful concept to start embedding into our debriefing feedback processes. And I think in many ways, this article for me is psychologically at least, uh, almost a follow-up to that. Uh, it's from a team based in Bern, Switzerland, and it goes on to ask some very natural sort of follow-up type questions. So uh, how many distinguishable conversational patterns are there to be found in debriefs? How are those patterns related to participants' perception of usefulness, satisfaction, and individual and team learning? And perhaps most importantly, how are those patterns related to the same outcomes in one month's time post the simulation? So a little bit of at least subacute follow-up of learning outcomes, or at least the perception of those. And I've got to say, reading through this article, it's such a lovely example of having a very clear and systematic process to look at those questions with a fair amount of academic rigor. And the methods are pretty complex, so I'll try and recap those as best I can. But essentially, they ran 25-hour simulation education sessions, which were observed and recorded at the Burn Simulation and CPR Center, and each comprised of an introduction, three scenarios each with immediate debriefs after that. And the teams included five to seven anesthesia residents, specialists, and nurses. They were co-debriefed by two certified sim instructors with anesthetic, nursing, and medical backgrounds, and this was an observational study. So basically, apart from informing everyone that conversational participation was going to be measured, there wasn't really any intervention. They just let things play out, and then they mapped it, and that's where a lot of the cleverness comes in. So they got two psychologists who were trained to rate interactions, orientated them to the world of simulation, and they then observed both the sims and the debriefs. And as the debriefs were happening, they counted all the speaking turns between participants and debriefers. There were then some surveys for the participants that came out before 
the inter- before the education session and then afterwards and at one month follow-up time. And they contained uh, subjective questions about personal motivation and perceived usefulness of the session before the sim and then after the sim, how much they felt they'd learned from each individual scenario as well as a satisfaction and usefulness rating for the session as a whole. So that was kind of the qualitative part. But in terms of the quantitative analysis, this is where things get pretty interesting. So the authors mapped the 57, what they call who to whom lists from the observed debriefings and then used network analysis software to map out those visual depictions of the debriefs. Very similar uh, in phenotype when it came out to Andrew Coggins' work with uh, fairly similar shapes. And what was interesting, though, was that those shapes were then averaged out using software, and eventually they found three primary shapes of network interactions, the fan, the triangle, and the net. Uh, and for, you know, fairly similar to the, the previous paper, so the fan being uh, a facilitator essentially talking to an individual who responds, and then the facilitator talks to a different individual and sort of moves around the room and engages most people, but in a one-to-one type basis. The triangle, where there's a lot of that back and forth between debriefer and one person, as well as a little bit of group interaction. And then the net, which is similar to the star shape that Andrew talks about, where there is uh, much more uh, group interaction and self-generated conversation with the facilitator shaping the conversation a lot less, or what we would traditionally think of as a more learner-centered debrief. And so- I love how these are called sociograms. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like we're measuring how many friends you have. <laughs> We've already Obviously, got good measures for that, measure right? Yeah. That, but I'm just—it's just a <laughs> nice term, clearly showing my ignorance in the field that it's such a novelty. Yeah, to me. yeah, no, it was very interesting stuff. And so when those uh, sociograms were mapped out in the network analysis software, the researchers could then categorize each debrief into those three patterns, and then compare their impact on learners' perception of usefulness and learning which is really exciting. And sure, learners' perception of learning isn't the greatest measure, which is acknowledged well in the article. But what a great start to trying to work out, sure, these are the shapes, and then how do those conversational patterns actually impact learning? Did you have any thoughts before I go on? I agree, loved it. And the reason you're right, the reason I put it in was it, it just really was a nice reflection of the work that Andrew Coggins had done, slightly different sort of stance for it but similar messages and I think did take it that extra level of saying so what do we think is good because I think in our conversation with Andrew we certainly said well who's to say that a a star is better than a fan maybe having a strong facilitator really helps but maybe having more people interact Uh, and I think also it just showed though that what people bring into sim is probably the biggest influence on that because their beginning motivation was still by far the biggest influence on satisfaction learning perceived usefulness way above any of the things that debriefers did so that was probably important to recognize if we need to have a little bit of a a reality check on our how much we think we can have an influence I'm pretty interested in this whole self-assessment question with um, Tash Yates as a PhD student of mine currently looking at that. And I can't really read anything that has self-assessment now without being very sceptical. It's still useful. It's just not necessarily truth. Uh, so I think self-assessment has its own um, complex interpretation. But like you, I think 
this is what we've got to start doing. Then we can build up the picture and see if the choices we're making give us the outcomes we're hoping for. Yeah, exactly. So I'll come back to that a little bit. In terms of what they found, the most egalitarian debrief was associated with improving short-term ratings from the participants of individual and team learning. Who's pretty consistent with existing kind of debriefing mantra that a learning-centered model is implicitly better, or at least liked better by participants. But there was no significant relationship between debriefing pattern and self-rated learning outcomes at the one-month mark, uh, which the authors proposed might be related to simple learning decay that happens over time. And then that thing that you highlighted really, really stuck out to me more than the conversational pattern, which was that the very obvious association had very little to do with facilitation at all. It was, uh, you know, learner motivation at the start and having highly motivated learners was clearly correlated with higher rates of usefulness, satisfaction, and self-reported learning immediately after and at the one-month mark. And that, to me, is just really believable. But it also opens up a lot of exciting different research questions about taking so much focus off the facilitator and working out how do we, A, help people uh, become more self-motivated and help them learn in general. And bring their psychological safety into it. Maybe they did the huddle at the beginning of their shift and then they came to Sims in the afternoon and that's why they're actually prepared to jump in and interact uh, because they've been working together previously. So in the last article you sort of asked about uh, what will you do differently and I'd have to say for this, for myself with this, it's actually quite freeing because in some ways it makes me go, well, so far I'm going to do what I want (laughs) when it comes to debriefing patterns, (laughs) what's going to work for this individual group. Uh, And maybe I'll start focusing a little bit on how I can better help learners and participants feel motivated and engaged rather than necessarily focusing too much on the shape, although I do still find it really useful to reflect and structure my thoughts. Yes, and I think I said that at the time, but having now done this a few times with our simulations, I think it's nice to have a little bit of awareness of at least what pattern you find yourself in uh whether it's a a fan or a triangle i think the triangle which is the medical debriefer talking to the one or two medical participants that one can be problematic it didn't come out there but i suspect if you went a little bit deeper there would be some non-medical participants who might feel alienated by that pattern because i I see that and i'm sure Mm. i've participated in that dynamic myself and uh, i think having an awareness that that goes on can be a prompt to hang on is this actually what i'm trying to achieve in here uh or am i actually looking for a team discussion I, i think it does actually in the sort of informal debriefing feedback i get in conversations with nurses that actually sometimes distresses me how much they're willing to tolerate of that like it's mm. almost like it's enculturated to the point where that's expected sometimes yeah. and so yeah i think that's a really useful point in terms of being aware of that as a mm. risky area and something to try and intervene with oh well congratulations to the folks in burn yes and uh good on them for finding this fancy software and knowing all about conversational uh network analysis yes it was really cool i really enjoyed it so almost enough that i would applause which brings us to our next paper 
Oh, I'm going to have a little interlude. You're first. going to have an interlude? Go for it. Yeah, yeah. My interlude is a little advertisement for a paper that you're an author. <laughs> Since we were talking about debriefing, uh, I just wanted to get the simulcast listeners. It's actually a good paper. We're not going to do it in great depth, but um, Ben is one author on a publication from Pete Snelling and colleagues at the Children's Hospital here uh, called Pre-Scripted Debriefing for Pediatric Simulation Associated with Resuscitation Education Prepared, a multi-centre cluster randomized controlled trial i know in pediatrics you can't really have a study that doesn't have an acronym can you so you had to have one it is strongly strongly indoctrinated yes so yeah, well yeah. done to pete for picking a good one yeah. <laughs> yes. and look i knew about this study years ago when i think people uh, jason ackworth in particular was talking about doing this and i think we have wondered um, in the simulation community about the role of having a script to help you debrief, particularly as a novice, when you don't really know what you should ask. And maybe it sounds a bit stilted, but at least you've got a guide. And this study really uh, compared, um, it was a cluster randomized trial and compared the uh, those working with a script uh, versus those working without a script. And back to our conversation about outcome measures, used the OSAD, Observational Structured Assessment of Debriefing Tool, um, which we know is from Aurora and colleagues a long time ago in the UK. Surprise, surprise, it actually came out pretty well, the uh, scripting. And I thought that this was an important thing and we can talk all we like about whether the OSAD is a perfect measure of our debriefing, but it's a measure of the debriefing. And I think it certainly gave people some confidence to enter into debriefs who might not have done it before. But I thought the most important outcome for this was it didn't seem to harm the experienced debriefers who could take the script and still work with it and around it. And it didn't stop them from also scoring quite highly if they were experienced debriefers and handed a script. Uh, have you got any non-biased thoughts, Ben? Uh, I don't, but I think it, it, it was an exciting paper to be involved with just in terms of sort of a fairly specific problem, but I think in terms of trying to design large-scale courses where you are rolling out um, to a population size that you can't individually either quality control or coach every individual faculty member. And so trying to find the right balance between uh, expectation support and providing some scaffolding that's not seen as a cage I think is a really important component of that when we're rolling it out at a course this large throughout the state so well done to Pete and colleagues absolutely and of course we'll put the link in our show notes but if you're interested that's in resuscitation plus uh, which is you know it's interesting where these simulation articles end up isn't it and I feel like just it's great to look at advances sim in healthcare, clinical simulation in nursing and IJOS, uh, but I also think um, I'm glad I'm still on Twitter a little bit because I often see things from other uh, journals come across that are great to highlight for the simulation community. But, yes, Ben, let's get on to applause. Absolutely. Uh, so to clap or not to clap, the relevance of applause in simulation-based learning sessions. It's by Jose L. Diaz Agia et al. and published in Simulation in Healthcare. And this article actually uh, really intrigued me because it was about something I'd never even considered as a potential issue. Uh, 
But then also I had a pretty strong emotional reaction to it, Vic, in that I'm not sure this is a Pandora's box that I personally have the guts to open. So hats off to the researchers. Um, the authors state, you know, within the context of clinical sim in higher education, students often applaud those who have just finished the simulation as soon as they enter the debriefing room. And some Spanish facilitators believe that this should not be allowed, arguing that it can mislead students who have made mistakes during the development of the scenario and who may misinterpret the applause as positive reinforcement for their wrongful actions. So this is a nice example of a group who've done a big qualitative study through focus groups and then they found something interesting and therefore kind of zoomed into that and given its own space in a smaller paper that's kind of separate to their other publication. Um, and that has allowed them to explore this interesting issue in more detail. So I, I got to say, Vic, I had no idea if this is a local controversy, a commonly discussed issue in Spain where the study is based, or if this is just a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, but full credits to the authors because they have taken this very interesting question, i.e. should observers be allowed to clap for participants at the end of a scenario, and they've explored that pretty in depth. So in the context of doing a bigger qualitative study around motivation, they had arranged seven focus groups with over 100 nursing students from Spain to come chat. And each of them had to have at least 100 hours of sim training experience and enrollment in a learning with simulation program. So it was a pretty uh, robust resume for the simulation participants, really. And it was, I felt, fairly representative of most nursing programs, I can imagine. They're about 75% young women, 25% young men, uh, which felt like a fairly realistic distribution of, of uh, work as done in nursing. And basically, at the end of a longer debate, the groups were explicitly asked, what is your opinion about spontaneous applause given to participants by their peers at the completion of the scenario as they go to debriefing and why? And look, in essence, overwhelmingly, except for a single participant, they saw it as solidarity rather than concrete feedback. So to quote one participant, they said, it is as if they recognize the work you have done. No matter how bad you've done it, recognition is given which to me seems, you know, pretty lovely. And the single participant who disagreed, uh, to their credit, because it would be pretty hard to uh, disagree with that many other people, but they clearly did take the applause as feedback, but she reported finding the asynchrony between her perception of her performance and the applause, no matter what she had done, sort of disingenuous and incongruent, which that was totally fair. Um, there's also, I'd love to highlight, quite a lovely discussion in the paper about the national culture within which these findings are interpretable, which we often, certain I know in a lot of Western papers, we have more of the baseball World Series type approach where we just kind of assume this is how it works with everyone. So given this study was at a university in Spain, the authors really take pains to highlight that there is a cultural tradition common to Mediterranean cultures that allows for greater public expression of emotion that may not be acceptable elsewhere. And they highlight some potential cultures or cultural stances that might make spontaneous applause either less likely or less appropriate. So I learned a few things, like, for example, they state that in Japan it could be taken as quite positive, but it would be acceptable if the teacher is the initial initiator, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Uh, so I thought there was some nice nuance there in terms of, yes, we're making a qualitative conclusion, but we're also going to frame that very clearly within our national culture and compare that how that might play out in others, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, it was interesting, and yet they made the point that they felt that in Spain 
their simulation folks felt, some at least felt that it was inappropriate to do clapping. Yes. And I got to say, this surprised me in that context and culture. And I do sort of, speaking of cultural dominance, have a personal rant to kind of tack on, which is I think yeah, this yeah, was a very ahead. brave question because if we are going to ask that question through research, should we ban applause in a debrief? That we have to be prepared that the answer from our research could be yes. And to be honest, I can't imagine a more horrifying <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> And uh, what are you going to do with that? that? Like, what are you going to do with that? You can say, okay, well, we're going to we're going to ban participants clapping for each other. And I cannot imagine an easier way to sabotage any psychological safety that you could build up with a group than getting them in at the start and saying, hey guys, look, uh, just to let you know, please don't clap for your colleagues because it makes us it harder for us to tell them that they sucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but that said, Ben, you may underestimate your influence. Like, what if people came back in, and then the others were kind of doing a bit of clapping, but you were just looking down at your feet, sort of shaking your head, not clapping? How long do you reckon the clapping would last? Like, you know, I, I think you might underestimate how you might be a bit more like the Japanese than we. <laughs> um. <laughs> or if you started cheering and waving, then everyone would get into it. I, I think people still take their cues from the facilitator a bit. Oh, I think that's super true. Um, and I would often initiate clapping at the end of a okay, debrief right. sometimes. Yep. Uh, but I do think we've just got to be very careful as facilitators about what we decide we are going to maintain control over yes. and what we're going to say. Actually... Participants' reaction is their reaction, and we have to just let that be. That's not our thing to own or control. I find that a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah I think it would be the uh, opposite of normalizing and validating. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe not. But, you know, fortunately it turned out the way it did yeah. for their uh, outcome. Mm. But there probably are a few people like the poor old participant, one participant who happened to have a contrary view. Um, interestingly... Looking at their author team, I don't think I've ever seen an author team that had five RN PhDs on it. Like, this is a very academic institution. Yeah. And, and uh, so, um, yeah, good on them. And, yeah, good on them for putting on the research hat uh, when faced with a controversial question. Yeah, they must have well had it. And I do love the methodology of asking the participants to start a debate. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that was slightly lost in translation, but I just imagined them sitting there saying, "Okay, now you need to do a debate, and you, you know you're going to talk about this versus yeah. this." But uh, it it struck me as uh, being a, a fun way to look at an interesting topic. No green, and I'm sure there was a lot of a lot of rich discussion given the groups that they got. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. All right, Ben. Well, thank you. I think that's the end of our uh, papers for today, but uh, a, a great array of things related to courses, debriefing, leadership. Uh, as per usual, we'll have the links to those papers on the Simulcast website for people to dive a little deeper if your appetite has been wet by our discussion. Uh, before we leave, Ben, I also want to give a little shout out 
to a couple of folks in Singapore that I visited recently. Uh, one group from the Woodlands Health Campus who are building a new hospital in Singapore had a great day at their quality day. And the other uh, was with the NUS Duke Sing Health team. And you might know Kirsty Freeman. We did her paper on imposter syndrome uh, relatively recently. She's doing her PhD on that. And another group in Singapore who are really doing great work in all things education, but uh, particularly around simulation as well. Uh, and Kirsty expressed appreciation for our critique of her paper. Uh, so that's enough motivation for me, for me, Ben, to keep doing it. Absolutely. No. All right. Well, have a great rest of October, Ben, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next month. Well, it is going to be great because I get to go on a little trip with you. So we'll have a lovely time. Looking forward to that. See you then. All right. Farewell, Simulcast listeners. This is Victoria Braslin, Ben Simon, signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 